0: Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today?
1: I'm P.G. Keene. I'm happy to be talking about movies with
0: friends. Uh, first up in controversies and non why does everyone hate Rachel Ziegler, uh, who played Maria in the remake of West Side Story? Actually, let's back this up. For one second, because essentially uh, no one other than some Twitter randos have voiced any displeasure at all with her. Um, Here's the real question. Why is the Daily Beast trying to convince people that Rachel Ziegler is, quote, becoming the new Anne Hathaway, end quote? Actually, hold on. Let's back up. Let's go one step further back here. One step further back here. What does that reference even mean? Surely it would be a good thing to be compared to Anne Hathaway, who has won an Oscar uh, and has been a working actress for, like, 20 years. That's a big deal. In this case, uh, as the tag on the Daily Beast story... Hate 2.0 makes clear it's a bad thing uh, because the internet decided at some point in the mid-aughts to mid-teens that Anne Hathaway should be a figure of scorn and derision. Hate was very popular in the darker corners of the Gawker Empire and elsewhere. Uh, she got the Mean Girls treatment for, well, no good reason, as best as I could ever tell. Um, well, there was one good reason. And that reason was that it drove clicks, because bitchiness on the internet drives clicks. Uh, And the Daily Beast trying to turn Zegler into an object of hate, again, based on a handful of Twitter randos uh, saying she has some annoying theater kid energy, is one of the more annoying things I've seen in recent times. Now... Granted, the Daily Beast has a habit of generating clicks by being kind of shitty to people. Uh, see also their breaking news hit on Meatloaf, which one could charitably describe as celebrating his death for being a vaccine mandate skeptic. And this is an issue that is by no means related uh, solely to them. This is not a Daily Beast problem. It is an every news outlet, which has one time or another aggregated some tweets, said something is happening when it probably isn't really happening, and then tried to make that thing happen. Um, as friend of the pod, Zach noted on Twitter, in six months, someone somewhere is going to write a piece about how all this uh, hate that Rachel Zegler is getting is unconscionable and the cycle will begin anew. Um, this segment is called controversies and non at least in part because of this trend. It was something I was reacting against years ago when we started the show, um, trying to discern what is actually controversial, what is an actual controversy versus what is a media generated non This is, I think, the primary job at this point of any good media consumer, figuring out what is an actual controversy and what is some dumb, ginned up non-troversy. Um, but the real controversy here has nothing to do with Zegler or the people tweeting about her. Really? Right, Peter? Isn't the controversy here that this piece was written at all? That it exists? Well, certainly you seem annoyed by it, Sonny. I am very annoyed.
1: So I I sort of have conflicted feelings here in in some ways. The Daily Beast is a tabloid. They, like, I mean, that's their approach. Tabloids have always published material that I find uh, irritating or objectionable or sort of trashy. I would count this piece um, a in you know, in that line, uh, at the same time, just as, you know, reporters can ignore what's going on on the Internet or what people are saying or what eight random Twitter eggs are saying, um, it's possible to ignore what The Daily Beast is publishing. And like, it's it seems like maybe it's not that big a deal. Um, again, it's not that I particularly like the style of journalism. Um, but I, I do think that sort of part of the part of a a healthy discourse is actually having an unhealthy strain to it. And I know that doesn't make, like that sort of sounds like it doesn't make sense, but but what you want from the discourse is not just for everybody to be saying the same thing, not for everybody to be saying uh, things that are nice, not for everybody to be saying, to be doing things that I think that Peter Suderman and Sonny Bunch and Alyssa Rosenberg think are good and great and wonderful. What you want is a Wrong. discourse in which people Wrong. say the enti- nasty- The entire okay. discourse okay. Are, should be governed fair. by what we think is good. <laughs> Actually, I'm convinced by Alyssa. No, right. We should be put in charge of it. Um, and it should be we We should actually have to get to sign off on the discourse before it happens. So, no, This is again, it, if you are if your question is, Peter Suderman, do you like this specific article? My answer is no. If your question is, do you like this type of article? My answer is no. But I also think that I can ignore this sort of thing um, and that part of a part of a a vibrant free press is having people say stuff that is kind of stupid. Nobody's, and people-
0: saying, nobody's saying that the government should come in here and shut down the Daily Beast for being a bunch of dickbags. Uh, what we're, <laughs> what I'm saying, at least, is that there's a difference between having, you know, the Twitter randos with 200 followers saying, oh, Rachel Zegler, annoying theater kid. Oh, we hate her. She's just like Anne Hathaway and having the daily beast with you know 25 or 30 million unique monthly visitors whatever their traffic numbers are saying the same thing and generating this sort of cycle that heaps angst and scorn and outrage on a person who has done nothing to deserve it but part Even of if that person is famous
1: part of hollywood journalism has for decades been uh, casting shade on people who are famous, beautiful, wealthy, et cetera, because those people are famous, beautiful, and wealthy. And there is a type of person who has always enjoyed feeling superior to that, to famous, beautiful, and wealthy people, to people who have stature in Hollywood. And, like, again, this is not how I want to approach this stuff. I don't, as a pretty general rule, I don't read gossip uh, about, like, Hollywood, you know, person about their personal lives. Um, I don't find that sort of thing particularly enjoyable. If you if you say you dislike it, I'm not sure what the so what is other than to say, well, look, we're all journalists here and none of us think this is a particularly good use of journalistic resources. That's probably true. But then, like, none of us work for the Daily Beast. And okay, so like, again, I'm like, what's the so what if we think it's bad?
2: I have an answer for that, actually. Okay, and I, I want to an hear for that as uh, as the member of the podcast who, among other things, like subscribes to People magazine news updates and like used to read a lot of Perez Hilton and just really, like, I really enjoy trashy gossip. Um, and you know, I, I I'm not I do not have the hours in the day to be like a keeping up with the Kardashians person, but I do enjoy um, a little ridiculous tidbit. And I think the actual problem with this here is much more sort of wonkily journalistic, which is that this is a piece by a breaking news intern for the Daily Beast. um, And it's not a piece that anyone should have allowed her or encouraged her to write for a couple of reasons. The first is that there is not actual sort of sourcing and substance here. There would be an interesting piece to be written here if um, a sort of reaction against Zegler's alleged tryhardness was having an impact on the Oscar race in some way. Um, but there's not a single source here who's not a social media rando, right? I mean, th- th- there isn't even evidence that this is a phenomenon that has, you know, ended up affecting the box, the mediocre box office turnout, uh, that is affecting the award season race, that it is even, you know, stymieing Zegler's efforts to figure out her second and third projects, all which are, you know, always sort of a challenge for a Hollywood ingenue. There is not actually evidence that this is a substantial phenomenon. And, you know, for me as a person who lives on the internet, a big turning point uh, in my relationship to social media came um, about a year ago when our fabulous sort of social guru at the post opinion section sat down a bunch of us and ran us through what percentage of people actually use various social media services. And understanding that 20% 20 percent of Americans are have Twitter accounts and that's more than actually participate in Twitter regularly helped me realize you know how unrepresentative the conversation was there and then sort of you know disconnected my brain from it like neo being jacked out of the matrix um for for the better I think being less online has been healthy for me and so a piece like this that is sourced entirely from sort of Twitter grousing and literally begins with, you know, referencing some Tumblr post as if it's a literary bummo, you know, is just a bad example of teaching someone how to source a story and judge whether a story is significant. And even more so because the conclusion of the piece is written sort of in a way that suggests that, you know, the author and her editor know that this is, you know, not really a story that they feel kind of queasy about it you know it sort of comes all the way around to being supposedly a meditation on the fact that this is bad right I mean the the closing line of the piece is it's an unfortunate fact of the internet we now live on whenever someone is feeling pretty and witty and bright there will always be someone lying in wait to try and cut them down I mean this is not a good kicker but it's also a kicker that totally invalidates the point of the piece
0: it's also it's also a kicker that should be on an opinion piece Or it's a kicker that should be on, like, a Gawker essay, right? When this is why – like, when this sort of thing happened at Gawker, it was at least a little more understandable because I do think that, you know, Gawker was a terrible place and full of toxic idiots. But, like, at least it was, like, their thing. I get it. Like, the Daily Beast is nominally a, like, real news site. But if
2: Gawker had done this, it would have made the case for hating Rachel Zegler, right? Like, it would have made the argument – for right. why her energy is unappealing or why she should not be embraced as a star or, you know, what her star turn says about, you know, Steven Spielberg and Hollywood's taste and why that's bad, right? There would be there would be heft behind it. This is something that is you – know, I mean it's – you know, it's literally – it doesn't even rise to the fury of sound and fury uttered by idiots signifying nothing because it's – you know, it's – barely even sound in fury. It's so anemic. Um, And then it can't even sort of commit to, it can't prove that this is a phenomenon, and then it doesn't have the guts to make an argument about it.
1: So I agreed that there's no news value here, and that there's no substantive sourcing, and that it's a problem that this was given to an intern who clearly was not given sufficient editorial oversight. But I also think that gossip journalism in tabloids has often relied on no-name hangers-on, you know, sort of nobodies who are just sort of mean spiritedly, vaguely connected to the subject of a report and who are just sort of calling and that that's gossip journalism. And I don't like it. There's
0: no vague connection here. It's just random people on Twitter saying, "Ah, we don't like her.
2: Yeah, it's actually worth uh, listening to the season of Your Must Remember This on Hollywood Gossip Columnist, which, yes, makes the point that people like Hedda Hopper were getting fed stuff from the studios. But the point there actually is that the gossip they were repeating was from people who were proximate, right, to the stories that they were, you know, dishing on, even if they were proximate with an interest, with a bias, you know, and if the the people reporting what they were saying weren't doing enough to sort of debunk it, there was some information value there. And look, you know this story should be allowed to exist. Like for all, I think that the world would be a better place if people just grokked our particular tastes and met them. Um, You know, I, I can't see like going after the Daily Beast or something like this. But I think that if you are training someone to work at a gossip profession, at, you know, a gossip publication, if you are training someone to be like, the next day had a hopper you should be training them better than this and you know as an editor as someone who works with younger journalists sometimes that's what offends me about this piece that it's a you know it's like a rotten mean piece and it's kind of a rotten mean thing to either assign an intern to do it or to say yes when they bring this to you as a pitch idea
0: yeah, I, a couple people uh, tagged the author of the I, – I tweeted something just like being like, this is a dumb piece and it should never have been written and it's mean and you know whatever. And a couple people tagged the you know news intern into my tweet and I was just like, I'm not mad at her. I'm not mad at her. Yeah. I'm not mad at this person who wrote this piece. I'm mad at the media ecosystem that encourages it to exist. Uh, and it's it's it is a it is a truly a structural problem. I mean Peter, you say so what? So so what? I mean I'm not saying again, I like I don't think like Barack Obama uh Barack Obama. I don't think Joe Biden should be sending Who's in the president, know, Sonny? uh the troops to shut down the Daily Beast. I can't I, I I'm like 8 years behind <laughs> now cuz we're get, we're going back to half a hate. That's how far back we are. My mind is in the half hate mode, um, but the you know I'm not saying we should send uh, the FBI in to raid the Daily Beast offices. I don't even think it's worthy of like a boycott. I'm not saying we should you know boycott the sponsors of the Daily Beast, but we should absolutely criticize them for it. And criticizing them is a totally real, totally rational response. Now maybe maybe that doesn't make any difference. Maybe it's just you know uh, whistling into the wind. But uh, it 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 somebody needs to say this is bad. And if that somebody is me, so be it.
1: Well, I agree it's bad. Um, I I think that the news value question is like in some ways the right one to raise here because there obviously isn't any. And at the same time, as we all know, like uh, on the Internet, a lot of journalism gets published not because it has any news value, but as Sonny said early on, because it drives clicks. And so if you can put Zegler and Hathaway in the same headline, then that's going to get traffic and traffic is what matters. And so unless you can convince readers not to like this sort of thing, there will always be, I think, an editor and, or uh, you know a, a writer who wants that traffic. And there's gonna be some organization that says, hey, we can get people to click And unless people stop clicking on this stuff, it's going to exist. And criticizing it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I don't think you're wrong. And I think it can even be valuable. And maybe you can shame editors into making better decisions at the same time. I actually think that in many cases, a better strategy is to just ignore it and just to say, look, there's stuff out there that I don't like. If you ask me, I'll tell you, I don't like it, but also not to pay attention
0: to it. So what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non that a major news site is trying to gin up hate toward a delightful innocent to satiate the bloodlust of the Internet? Uh, Alyssa.
2: Uh, it's a controversy. Gossip readers deserve a better quality of trash.
0: Peter. It's a controversy that we're talking about it controversy that you refuse to condemn them for this. How dare you? I said I, now, I didn't now, like it now, now and I my, didn't approve. Now my ire is aimed at Peter Suderman <laughs> for tolerating this crap. Peter Suderman right. is
2: controversial.
0: Yes, Peter Suderman. I'm the controversy, controversy. here. But but what are you going to do about it, Sonny? What's the so what?
2: We're going to make fun of you on this podcast. I'm going
0: to swat <laughs> you. I'm going to swat you right now while we're on this show. Uh, you just you just hold on. well all right are going to call your show, President Obama and Tell him If you enjoy this show, uh, and who doesn't? President Obama loves it. He's listening to it right now in 2013 or whenever half a hate happened. Uh, please head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we will uh, be talking about Netflix's very, very bad week and what it means for the future of Hollywood. And now on to the main event, The Lost Daughter. Uh, just as a heads up here, there will be spoilers in this discussion because I want to talk about the very end of this movie and what the final shots mean um, so if you're worried about spoilers uh, stop listening now just turn it off I already, I already got your download so it doesn't matter uh, come back later go watch the movie come back it's a good movie I liked it there's another spoiler thumbs up from me but uh, go go watch it come back we'll we'll talk about it in, in a few minutes um, The Lost Daughter now on Netflix is the directorial debut from Maggie Gyllenhaal uh, she also wrote the film which is based on a novel by Elena Ferrante am I getting that right Alyssa? Uh, yes I've never actually said her name aloud I okay, believe so you. Alright, uh, the film uh, is split between two timelines. Uh, in the present, Olivia Coleman plays Lita Caruso, an academic on holiday at a Greek beach resort. Uh, at first empty, the beach soon becomes host to a group of raucous Americans, and I believe Greeks, I think, uh, though I'm I'm happy to admit I may have misheard some of those accents. My hearing has been a bit stuffy recently. Uh, they get her hackles up when the matriarch of the clan asks her to move down the beach so her family can all sit together. Lita refuses, and we cheer. We say yes, good, good for you, standing up for your Herself. Um, but eventually uh, she gets close to this family after locating a little girl who has wandered off from them and sent them all into a panic. Uh, the little girl's wandering triggers memories of Lita's own uh, from her time as a younger mother. And this is where the second half of the film comes in, uh, which is it's told in flashbacks, it's kind of intercut with the main narrative. Jesse Buckley plays the younger Lita, and as we see that part of her life, it quickly becomes apparent why her. Uh, her story has resonated with folks who are in lockdown right now. She has two kids, they're like three and seven, something like that, and they make it impossible for her to do the work she needs to do to finish her PhD. It's a predicament very familiar to anyone who has tried to work a full-time job while their children were uh, trying to do Zoom classes and the such. Uh, Lena's efforts to mollify the children are met with resistance, and she is, shall we say, uncaring. Uh, She tries to ignore them, she smashes a family doll after one of the the girl's colors on it, Uh, and And then eventually she abandons them altogether for three years so she can carry on an affair with Peter Sarsgaard. Uh, I was not expecting this, but the movie that The Lost Daughter reminded me most of, weirdly, was The Wolf of Wall Street. Sure, she and Jordan Belfort have very different desires, and yes, the style of the film is very different, but at the end of the day, you have two people who don't really care about anybody but themselves. They abandon their families to pursue their self-fulfillment and their carnal desires, uh, Lita with literature and Sarsgaard, Belfort with Lamborghinis and Margot Robbie, and they just treat as disposable the feelings of everyone around them. Like Martin Scorsese, the director of Wolf of Wall, street dylan hall doesn't really judge she shows what happens and lets us make up our mind the closest she gets to tipping her hand i think is when we see a rotten bowl of fruit in her greek seaside apartment it's literally the fruits of all of her labors they're all rotten uh, even if the outside facing portion looks fresh and delicious on the inside rotten gross full of maggots i had two big questions about the ending Alyssa. i was curious to get your thoughts on this question number one Is Lita at the end of the film dead, uh, having just been stabbed, suffering a major car crash, passing out on the beach and waking up peeling an orange, which called to mind The Godfather, of course. And we all know what oranges mean in The Godfather. Uh, Question number two, is Bianca dead? After all, we see her go missing in the flashbacks, but we never see them reunited. There are some phone calls that never quite connect. Uh, And if Lita is dead on that beach, might that explain why she finally connects with the girl on the phone?
2: Hmm, that reading had not occurred to me all
0: which one The all of it sort or? of
2: all of it um i mean because i think that the two readings are complementary in the way that you describe them i mean certainly it's fairly odd that this character who's been in, suffered a significant stab wound is like packing her stuff and leaving greek Greece breath and then you know Calling an ambulance or collapsing in a pool of her own blood. I mean, that thing is long. and
0: It's a long needle. Yeah. Hat pin. It was a hat pin. And,
2: like, unless Dakota Johnson's character is just really good at, you know, stabbing people in the heat of anger so she avoids any major internal organs, like—
0: well, she clearly passes out while she's driving that car. Yes. I mean, from blood loss or whatever. Exactly. Uh,
2: um, so given the sort of strangeness of the ending, I suppose that's plausible. It didn't occur to me while I was watching it. And it, the ending wasn't really what struck me about the movie in any way. I could I could see it, but it it, it was not something that occurred to me in the okay. moment, I have to okay. say. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, what did you think of the movie in general?
2: Um I, I had suggested that we watch this in part because I've been interested in the kind of exhausted mom discourse around it. Uh, the best piece of which I think is Amanda Hess's sort of meditation on the mother who leaves in the New York Times. But, and the movie does one thing that I think is effective and unusual, which is not just that it shows mother a mother who leaves her children, but that You can see why she might want to leave, not just because her own work is being unfulfilled or, you know, Peter Sarsgaard is like doing the sexy lit theory thing about her work at conferences, Um, but because children can be genuinely unpleasant and grating in some ways. And the movie does not try to make Lita seem unsympathetic by making her kids seem cute and appealing and winning In fact, the little girls that we see in this movie are, you know, kind of grubby and whiny and sullen and grating. And the truth is small people can be difficult. They just can. And I say this as the mother of two small people who I adore and who are much more like, you know, have those moments. But also who have moments of charm of the type that are not really reflected in this movie. But what makes Lita a weird stand-in for the kind of fantasy of maternal escape after several grinding years of, you know, attempting to do anything else while also supervising Zoom school and sticking, you know, swabs for COVID tests up your kid's nostrils is that Lita just comes across as really off in certain ways in the movie, right? I mean – The sort of determination to be difficult in the face of the the family joining her on the beach. Um,
0: Mm -hmm. Taking the Taking
2: the doll, which is a very strange act. And the fact that she sort of carries it on for so long. But even in the flashbacks, I mean, you know, there's a scene of her masturbating in her living room and then being interrupted by her kids, right? I mean, this is someone whose sense of boundaries – are not properly established. And you sort of see that even before she has the affair, even before she leaves. And there's this one allusion to her having had a really terrible childhood that the movie never really develops. But, you know, there is something just not quite right with this person in a way that does not make her a stand-in for, you know, other mothers who leave or who stay, right? You know, there is something just wrong with this person in a way that makes for an interesting movie, but for less than entirely apt sociological commentary.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is again, this is why the the character that kept coming to mind for me was Jordan Belfort, who is I mean, I, I think I feel comfortable saying is like basically a sociopath has no has no no sense of other people's feelings and doesn't really care about them, whether they're hurt uh, with his various schemes or whatever. Um, and she comes across the same way. Again, the, the 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 thing that jumped out to me the most was stealing the the little girl's doll from the beach. Holding on to it for, through the whole movie, even as she's crying and going on, and the family's talking about how upset she is and how you know how distraught she is. Now they're going to have to buy a new one to you know keep her keep her. And even after that, she's not. And then she keeps holding on. She doesn't. She doesn't return it. She doesn't like place it someplace where somebody can find it. It. It is, I, like, it is genuinely, it is, like, monstrous in a very weird and specific way. Especially
2: because she is herself sort of dressing up the doll, trying to clean it. You know, there's this scene where she's trying to get this, like, sort of sea ooze out of it. And, yeah. a, you know, like, some sort of worm or slug or leech comes out of it. She's sleeping with it. I mean, it's it's meant yeah. to be, like, she's a perverse person uh, in a fairly deep way. And... Even more than that, the scene that struck me is um, the flashback where she is leaving. You know, she's clearly come back with these pretty dresses for her girls. She's dressing them up. She's sort of projecting them forward into their teen years in a way that's not entirely appropriate feeling. And she's doing this in preparation to leave them. And when her husband begs her to stay, even again, I think probably knowing that she's cheating on him. And says that he's going to take the girls to her mother's because he's overwhelmed. She doesn't sympathize. She calls him an asshole, right? Like she expects him, you know, there's this sort of a deep lack of sort of guilt or moral reflection about what she's doing, But an expectation that other people ought to be better than her, that they, you know, there's sort of this contempt for the idea that someone might feel the same stress and strain that she does. And, you know, we see a couple of times her husband asking her to handle something with the girls while he's on the phone or whatever, but we don't get a sort of developed backstory that suggests that he's, like, awful to her on some level. Um, She just finds motherhood unsatisfying and wants to leave. And... The contempt and anger at someone else for needing the kind of help that she herself, you know, clearly wants. Again, it's just sort of it makes you realize that there's something off about this person, uh, in a way yeah. that is compelling to watch on screen. But again, not really a political argument.
0: Yeah. Uh, Peter, what did you make of The Lost Daughter?
1: Uh, so I actually just want to talk about the doll specifically, since I think it's, in a lot of ways, it's the key to the film and uh, and and the film's ideas about motherhood and, and daughterhood and also about uh, Olivia Coleman's character. Um, I, so I, I really liked this movie. I don't think it's, it's quite a great film, but it's a very good one um, with a lot of great performances. And I, I guess, you know, I, I saw her decision to take the doll after returning the real daughter, um, right? Because those are two; those those are kind of a joint act. So she takes the doll as an act of attempted revenge and also of attempted self healing, right? Because she is someone who has who has herself lost her daughters. She's only sort of barely in you know in uh, in connection with them, right? She had several years away from them that she has. I don't know if I want to say regrets, but like complex, difficult feelings about, right? Like she says, well, I came back because I'm their mother, right? As just as if it's this like this fact that it's it's not even something she wanted to do. It's not something that she didn't want to do. It was just a thing that happened because of the, the biological connection between mother and daughter, right? And so this movie is really fascinating in the way that it presents the layeredness of mother-daughter relationships, right? It's like a nesting doll, a matrashka doll of mother-daughter relationships, all of which are sort of broken in some way, right? And so you have uh, you have Dakota Johnson's uh, relationship with her daughter. You have um, D- Dakota Johnson's sister, who is uh, somewhat older and pregnant for the first time. You know, someone who tried very a very long time to have a child, right? And um, it took a while, right? So again, a- another lost child there, right? You have the doll who is lost to the little girl because the little girl had seen that doll kind of as as her child that she was going to take care of. And so Coleman is trying to bring back something that she has lost by taking that doll. And at the same time, she's also trying to inflict pain on these other people who, for a variety of reasons, she doesn't like, right? And in part, she just doesn't like them because she views them as crass and gross, uh, because they tried to get her to move her seat on vacation um because they just sort of they seem a little bit like jerks because the one daughter sister played by Dakota Johnson is uh cheating uh on her husband with uh the the kind of nice guy what is he a lifeguard is he a porter like a sort of pool beach boy. waiter or something Commander other boy. who Olivia Coleman clearly was interested in, right? And so there's uh, so Dakota Johnson's character is kind of edging in on Coleman's fantasy of 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 maybe uh having, you know, something with the pool boy who she invites to dinner and has this like really kind of lovely little meal with. It's clearly a date even though the pool oh. boy Oh is not Honestly, in th- on that. I think
0: you're misreading that. Okay. I think he, he is the one who says that she is beautiful and attractive. Sure, and he's like, being nice is to He's like her. kind of moonily leaning in. But she is treating this as a, like, I, I think a surrogate child relationship or a student relationship. I mean, she's talking, she 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 brings him out to dinner specifically after he mentions going to school and, like, to be a mentor. I think it's, it's a weird combination of both because later...
1: Another character who we haven't talked about yet, played by Ed Harris, talks about his children who happen to be almost exactly the Olivia Coleman character's ages, right? And so that and twists whom he's and also right, strange. Right. And so that also twists the kind of relationship between Coleman and Ed Harris because she feels like she in some sense could be his daughter, right? And so there is a sort of parental relationship. At the same time, she and he have maybe some sort of attraction. Certainly he has some towards her, uh, that he pursues in his, you know, halting way. And so I just appreciated the fact that it. This movie is like a, uh, it's like a fractal, right? And the whole thing about fractals is like the the closer you look, the like at, at like no matter what stage of magnification you look at them, they're always just as complicated. And that's that's kind of the design of this movie is that it, no matter what set of relationships you look at, you see the same pattern reinforced over and over and over again. In these, you know, parental bonds that are that are strange and twisted and broken, in part because Olivia Coleman has sort of has has made a hash of all of them. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting here is that it allows Olivia Coleman's character to be a monster while also allowing you to understand and even relate to her at times. In particular, there's that scene in which she goes to watch the movie and the troop of idiot boys, you know, that who are being jerks, like interrupt. And it really like it's actually it's a great scene for building empathy for her, because it's especially if you're like a moviegoer, because who hasn't been in a movie theater surrounded by idiots who are yelling and screaming at the at the screen and you just want them to shut up. And so she's the monster and, and she's the one who is the terrible mother. And yet you relate to her. And then there's this other family and the other family, we are told they're bad people. And they're the family who are trying to have good relationships with their children. And that's a really interesting sort of thing where where the movie actually allows the monster to be the relatable one who is a bad mother while giving us the bad family who one thing about them is that they try to treat their family well.
0: Well, I I do think that this is I think, again, this is this is the interesting thing that Maggie Gyllenhaal is doing, I think, which is that uh, she is showing us she is not leading us by the hand and forcing us to. Think and she does kind of trip up our expectations. Like I said, early in the film when when she says no, she's not gonna move on the beach, that is us we are supposed to look at her and say, Yes, this is look good for her, standing up for herself. You know, we we support this. Um and it, it, it becomes very clear later on that she's just kind of a she's just kind of a difficult jerk yeah. all the time. And I also appreciated that theater scene, though it does sh- strike me as a insidious Netflix anti-theater propaganda, trying to you know <laughs> remind people of how terrible the theaters can be. While we're we can talk about that in the bonus. It's episode. interesting. We'll I
2: haven't later. I haven't read the Ferrante novel that this is an adaptation of, and. Uh, Richard Brody points out that it loses a little something in the sort of transliteration of the character's backgrounds just because I think in the novel the family on the beach is supposed to be clearly coded as kind of involved in I think Sicilian crime in some way in a way that specifically brings up bad memories of her own upbringing for Lita. And that context doesn't exist here at all. And I think it might have made the coding a little bit clearer. But I do want to just add a word in praise of Dakota Johnson, who I think is great in this. And, you know, she kind of has a reputation as a nepotism case. You know, her big breakout was the Fifty Shades movies, which are terrible because the source movie material is terrible. But she, you know, at least she got along
1: with Jamie Dornan really well on the press tour.
2: Um, But I think she's wonderful here as someone who is, you know, I think she she has this line where she says, you know, I have a depression or something. But she clearly is depressed and not doing well and, you know, is in this sort of tense marriage where she has to kind of perform sexual availability and enthusiasm for someone she actually feels very tense around and controlled by. And the movie suggests something interesting in that – Maybe she's being a bad mother by staying and modeling this relationship for her daughter. She, you know, she's kind of at a loss with her daughter. She doesn't know how to handle her upsets. Um, She, you know, she just finds motherhood really exhausting and confusing in a different way than Lita does, right? Like Lita kind of knows what to do with her daughter. She just doesn't want to do it. Uh, Whereas Johnson's character just seems to find being a mother kind of baffling and exhausting and you know it's interesting to have her sister sister sister-in-law I think sister um you know be someone who sort of assumes that mothering is going to involve this like automatic easy bond and is constantly kind of swooping in to parent the way she thinks she should parent in part because getting pregnant has clearly been an effort for her and so she needs to believe that it is this sort of joyous innately understandable experience um and i i thought that was just a really nice little two-hander taking place in the background of the movie um and johnson really makes it work
0: yeah, she's great. Uh, we and we didn't talk about Ed Harris at all, who was also very good. Uh, lots of lots of very solid performances. I mean, Peter
1: Sarsgaard in is this. in this uh, uh, and is kind of great. Peter Sarsgaard as, as uh, right as like the loose, sexy rotund Peter Sarsgaard, with, like, lip professor, great beard. Um, but what's like, it's kind of notable that he's cast this way because you know he's married to Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah.
2: can we have a Suderman grows the Sarsgaard beard challenge on the podcast? Like, I just uh-huh. I want to I want to see you grow the Peter Sarsgaard beard.
1: <laughs> uh, I'll, uh, I'll do what I can. We'll think about it.
0: All right. Uh, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on The Lost Daughter? Peter. Thumbs up. Alyssa. Thumbs up. Thumbs up for me as well. Check it out on Netflix. All right. That is it for today's show. Uh, if you loved it, make sure to check out our members only bonus episode on Netflix's bad couple of months. Uh, make sure to tell your friends strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences if we don't grow we will die if you did not love today's episode please complain to me on twitter at sunny bunch we'll convince you that it is in fact the best show in your podcast feed see you guys next week